Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Yord, and thank you for joining me for the Right Life Project podcast. I'm here to help you get a handle on what it takes to achieve your highest level of human functioning, and then hopefully inspire and guide you in taking action to do that. Very soon, I'm going to be making some things available to you that more clearly and thoroughly spell things out for you all in one place. And you'll want to be on the Right Life Project email list for that. I'm dropping a hint here. But if you're familiar with the things I've covered so far on the blog and podcast, you know that what I'm asking you to do is to assess the primary dimensions of your life to determine how well your current state measures up to a state in which you're fully exercising your human capacities and satisfying your deepest human needs. Those dimensions of life are psychological health, physical health, social health, and vocational health. They're all interrelated with each other, and each is influenced by your capacity to pay attention to your experience in them as it unfolds, or mindfulness. To date in the podcast, I've covered some of the fundamental topics, and I've also begun highlighting connections between some of them. In today's talk, I'm going to do more of both, fundamentals and connections highlighting, by talking about addiction. When people hear the word addiction, they often think right away of substance addiction. Rightfully so, I think, because that's the most obvious way that we encounter it in life, whether it's in our own life, the life of someone we know, or what's portrayed in the media. Today, though, I'm not limiting the discussion to substance addiction. In fact, I'm using the word addiction interchangeably with compulsion. From a mental health perspective, addiction is a particular thing, implying dependence. And in order to diagnose dependence, You need to have symptoms like increasing tolerance and withdrawal symptoms, which may not characterize every compulsion. Today I'll use the terms interchangeably because of their commonalities. The underlying drive to relieve anxiety of some kind, and the seeming inability to stop the behavior, even though you want to or know you should. Despite your best intentions and efforts, letting go of an addiction often involves relapse at some point. In fact, that's part of the definition of addiction in some circles, a condition of chronic relapse. Now again, people usually think of relapse within the context of substance addiction, but many of the same challenges exist in any type of long-term behavior modification effort. That is, changing the way you're used to doing things. Clearly, this is a challenge that anyone who's attempting to make changes in their life, such as by cultivating a right life, is going to run up against. Cutting back on watching television, abstaining from eating unhealthy foods, and not gossiping so much, all these things are also subject to relapse. Now, when you consider those examples, or examples of entrenched behavior patterns in your own life that you'd like to change, notice that 99 times out of 100, you're attempting to do less of something that the primitive parts of your brain are pushing for, and more of something that's in alignment with your uniquely human needs. That is, the ones you need to meet in order to thrive. Actually, I'm using 99% to give myself some wiggle room. In my life, it's the full 100%. 
I can't remember ever wanting to cut back on exercising, eating a healthy diet, or being compassionate. Anyway, if you recall from past articles and podcasts, the more primitive parts of your brain that we share with all the other animals are concerned with your physical survival, and often your brain's default position is to let those parts of your brain call the shots at the expense of your ability to satisfy your most human needs, which are often at cross-purposes to the primitive ones. This highlights two points. One is that improving yourself and making effort are joined at the hip. That's why you're better off taking the more difficult options that present themselves. The other is that we can all relate to addictive behavior trying not to do one thing and instead trying to do something else that is better for us, and not being able to do it perfectly every time. I'm assuming that everyone can relate, because I've never met anyone who can change long-standing behavior patterns at will, anytime, every time, with no slippage. If you think you do, perhaps you don't need to listen to the rest of this. But note that there's another aspect of compulsion, compulsive thought processes, that I'm quite certain everyone has experience with. I'm going to do an article or talk on that topic specifically before too long. But keep that in the back of your mind, that much of what we're talking about today applies equally to habits of the mind and the body. Compulsion is a foundational topic in the right life approach, then, because inasmuch as you want to make changes to improve your life, you're bound to run up against it and you're almost certainly going to suffer a relapse at some point by falling back into the comfortable zone where you aren't making any progress. So what can we do about this? Well, changing the way you conceptualize and approach your behavior can help you turn the odds in your favor. People have the tendency to identify their addictions as entities outside of themselves. You might say that those TV shows that you just need to watch have a real grip on me, or I'm fighting my addiction to food, or that's my addiction talking. Statements like these can be a convenient way to language the problem, but personifying a behavior pattern as a thing that grips, fights, and talks can bestow upon it a substance that it really doesn't have. I'll use smoking as an example, but you can insert any compulsive behavior. When smoking, the act of smoking, becomes smoking, that thing with a capital S, you've become engaged in a battle with a large, shadowy, elusive entity outside of yourself that has mysterious powers over you. Even without describing a compulsion using words like it has a grip on me or it's fighting me, there can still be that subtle or not so subtle feeling that you're up against an opponent, right? On the other hand, smoking, lowercase s, the act of smoking, is a human-scale behavior, and it's an inside job. There's just a craving to smoke, or overeat, or drink, or watch television, or use the internet, that arises within you, and your reaction to it. Both the urge and the reaction emerge in a particular way from complex relationships between biology 
environment, and conditioning. And they might seem so powerful as to be invincible. However, there is no smoking, capital S, that you need to battle. The urge or craving to smoke arises, along with some physical sensations and then rationalizations. You will or won't smoke. The craving, physical sensations, and thoughts will ultimately pass either way. That's all. Let's say you're a sober person and find yourself in a bar, not wanting to drink alcohol, but feeling uncomfortable with a club soda in your hand and having the urge to drink. Or you're trying to stop overindulging in sweets, but everyone at the office is eating birthday cake yet again, and your mouth is watering, and they're handing you a slice. You could ball your fists up and square off with drinking, capital D, or overeating, capital O, through sheer willpower, or you could turn and flee the discomfort. If you take either of those approaches, you're doing two things. One, you're reinforcing the sense that your behavior pattern is a monolithic thing that can only be fought with or escaped. Two, you're meeting the urge and the behavior with aversion. That's a problem because it's that very instinctual avoidance of discomfort, which is the flip side of seeking only pleasant experiences in your life, that keeps you from satisfying the needs of your core self. Because those, like change itself, require discomfort. By definition, when you're trying to change your way of doing things, you're entering into new, less familiar, less comfortable territory. So telling your behavior pattern, essentially to talk to the hand, just reinforces the dynamics that keep you stuck. So what about trying another approach? What would happen if you turned toward the difficulty and explored it with curiosity, as if you had to describe what you're feeling to someone else? Now I'm going to insert a disclaimer here. I'm not advising you to do anything that jeopardizes your program of change, especially if you're trying to recover from a substance addiction. There are situations in which leaving is the absolute best thing to do, and if that's what you feel you need to do, then please do it. But because people often avoid the slightest discomfort, they don't always realize that they do have the ability to tolerate some discomfort if they're willing to turn toward it and really get to know it. Urges and emotions are often visceral, physical phenomena first, before the mind gets involved. Where in your body do you feel the urge to have that drink, or that cupcake, or to set yourself up on the couch for yet another Netflix marathon when you have other things you should be doing? In other words, with the question in mind, how do I know that I'm having this urge? Go exploring for the answer in the physical sensations in your body. Before the rationalizations come, you know, the voice of your compulsion that argues against the interests of your core self, there is the craving, and the craving is just a sensation. So try to see it for what it is. Even if you stay to explore the discomfort for just a minute before using some kind of avoidance maneuver, that's a good place to start. No matter which of the three approaches you take when that birthday cake comes out, either leaving immediately when an urge hits, 
white knuckling it through to the other side, or dropping in to explore what an urge feels like. Either way, you'll be practicing your desired outcome of not eating a piece of cake. However, only one of these options will help you get at the root of the problem. By approaching your discomfort with curiosity, friendliness even, you'll open yourself fully to what underlies it. In the bar, maybe you feel your heart beating faster and heat rising in your face. The signs of insecurity and social anxiety, perhaps. At the office party, you may feel the same thing, along with your watering mouth and the pangs of your growling stomach. Who knows? See what the particulars are for you. Whatever they are, over time, you'll see that those feelings and sensations may be attention-grabbing and uncomfortable, but they don't have the power to kill you. They also point to a deeper truth, that the urge to drink, overeat, binge-watch Netflix, or whatever, stems from underlying emotional distress, which is where the real work needs to be done. The craving is a manifestation of wanting to feel better, so it's not an adversary. It's just clueless. So if you really must personify your compulsion as an entity, then at least see it as the well-intentioned bumbling fool that it is. As you practice remaining present with your urges and cravings and fine-tune your observations of them, deconstructing them really, you'll come to see their emergence the moment-to-moment changing of the physical sensations that are their calling card, and their ultimate disappearance, and all of that happening without you having to do anything. If you run from them without even looking at them, it's like fearing the monster under your bed instead of getting on your knees with a flashlight and finding that it's just your dim-witted friend wearing a mask. If you haven't noticed, the approach I'm describing is a type of mindfulness practice. I wouldn't go so far as to say that all roads lead back to mindfulness, but a lot of them do. It's because moments are the basic units of your life. It's in individual moments that your life happens, and it's only in individual moments that you can change your relationship to your experience or make change happen. When moments get strung together, They take on this solidity that we remember or project as the past or future. But that stringing together is something extra that's happening in your mind. In much the same way as your mind adds substance and personality to the sensations of urges and cravings. Dropping into the moments is a way of creating the space for real change to take place. So if you haven't listened to it already, you may want to check out the Mindfulness Podcast. Uh, podcast 2, or mindfulness-tagged articles on the RLP website. I'll put some links and some additional brief commentary in the show notes for this podcast, Podcast 5, on the website too. While you're on the website, please sign up for my email list. That'll enable you to stay in the loop with my latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, workshop announcements, and event announcements. Plus, if you sign up today, you'll receive a very special free gift that I have not yet made public. I'll be making it public on New Year's Day, but I'm providing it in advance to my existing 
email subscribers as a gesture of my gratitude for your support. So sign up and I'll send you a link to a gift that if you like the work I'm doing here, you'll probably be happy to receive. Also, please do me a favor and rate and review the Right Life Project podcast on iTunes. The way it works is that the more and the better reviews a podcast has, the more exposure Apple will bestow upon it. I'd like as many people as possible to benefit from the effort I put into RLP, and you play an important role in that, so I appreciate your support. So please visit the website and obtain that free gift. And until next time, thank you again for joining me, and I wish you all the best in your pursuit of your right life.